Hey everybody, welcome back to Jointly Venturing. Let's talk world citizenship, the podcast of Oneness World. This is episode 22. And in episode 22, we're going to ask everybody to think in the first instance of of the place you call home and the actual physical structure of the place you call home, the neighborhood, the community, the region or the state, then maybe even the country or the broader region, and then the, the home that all of us share, planet Earth. So if we go back to that first home, you know, how sacred is that home to you? How special is that home to you? What have you done in that home throughout your life? What are the memories associated with that home? And we're going to talk about home today in the context not only of how important it is for everybody to have a decent home, but what would happen if something beyond your control was to take that home away from you and you really effectively had nowhere else to go? Not because you didn't have any money, not because you found that there were too many people for too few housing spots, but because your very country no longer physically was able to maintain a human population because of climate change. So today, episode 22, we're going to speak about the question of rising sea levels in the context of small island nations and talk to an advisor to one of these countries about um, how they, generally small island nations, are addressing this really pressing global issue. And this issue, similar in a way to COVID-19, in terms of making us all realize whether we like it or not, that we all are truly in this together. We're all truly vulnerable to a global disease. And we're also all truly vulnerable to the problem of climate change some places more than others, like the small island nation states, some less than others, but no one gets off scot-free. Everyone's affected in one way or another by climate change, and that is in all likelihood only going to worsen as years go by. And so as we hear some stories from the Pacific today, it's also important to remember that the CO2 emissions of the Pacific island nations, the carbon dioxide emissions, which are the main contributor to global warming, in many of those countries are effectively zero. And yet they're paying the price for massive CO2 emissions from the rest of the world, historically by the United States, Europe, and now today, China, and other emerging economies. So all of us are in this together all of us who are world citizens at heart and those who are emerging and evolving into world citizens, part of the process of leading us in that direction is that we care not only about our family, not only about our friends, not only about our neighbors or our community, not only about our region or our country, but we care about everybody everywhere. And we care about them simply because we share humanity with one, with one another. But in the case of the Pacific Island nations, we even add, need to add a layer of care and concern. Because not only is it important to remember that they too 
have dreams and hopes and aspirations like we all do. But in fact, the very economic system that so many of us benefit from is the actual cause behind the rising sea levels that are forcing them from their homes. So all of us need to have a concern, and all of us also need to remember that every single one of us, our ancestors, past and future, also all bear some degree of responsibility for this. So we simply cannot let them wash away or sink below the seas. We all need to become increasingly part of the solution. And so today we're really happy to be speaking with Geneva. We're speaking with Switzerland today. Well, actually, probably France, in fact, right across the border in Jex. I'm assuming that's where our guest is right now. Um, right. And our guest today is, is Guillaume Charon, and he is an advisor to the government of the Marshall Islands um, and works with the group called Independent Diplomat, which helps countries with uh, small diplomatic corps, corps um, pursue their own objectives at the international level. So, Guillaume, welcome to Jointly Venturing. Thank you, Scott. Happy to be here. Great. Well, it's great to have you here today from France. I think you're in France, not Geneva, right? Yes, that's right. I'm that's right. just across the border. That's right. And um, so tell us first and foremost about um, the work of independent diplomat, and then we can move into the direction of talking about... Uh, uh, the Marshall Islands and elsewhere in the Pacific. Of course, um, independent diplomat. Um, I, I, it's an interesting name, right? It's oxymoric because diplomats tend to represent states. Um, and, you know, I think that goes to the heart of what independent diplomat is. Uh, it was founded by a British diplomat called Karn Ross, Mm-hmm. Uh, who was working for the British mission back in 2003 at the UN Security Council when the UK government decided to go to war in Iraq on the issue of the weapons of mass destruction and the threat that it represented, you know, 45 minutes threat and so on and so forth. And Karn Ross, who was the, one of the lead diplomats at the British mission in New York, uh, had realized that you know, the, the British government was effectively lying to the public that the information that they had on the, the threat that the weapons of mass destruction represented in Iraq was not the one that was being sold to the British public. And he resigned as a, as a, as a result from, from, from the foreign office. And, um, and that's where he created independent diplomat uh, with the philosophy that um, you need to actually be inclusive, that diplomacy affects uh, the lives of many of us, and um, all those that are generally affected by those decisions seldom have a capacity or, or possibility to interact and influence those decisions. So the idea is that we uh, create the space uh, diplomatically to allow for those voices to come in and influence the policies that will affect them. That's sort of how we work, create a space and then amplify the voices. And right. And as such, we've been working with the Marshall Islands for over 10 years now to amplify uh, their plight in so far as climate change policy is concerned, combating climate change policy. Right. And where, what other countries are you working in now besides, before we start talking in, in more detail about the Marshalls? So we, we, we traditionally we've been trying to push for inclusive 
diplomacy around peace processes. So we work with uh, in, in, in Mali, for instance, there is a conflict in the Sahel, and we work uh, with the marginalized groups in the north, uh, which have been neglected for so long, but are part of the peace process. We have encouraged the demobilization and, and the process uh, called, uh, redu- reducing the amounts of arms circulating there to try to encourage and encourage the, the peace process to go on in Mali. We've done something similar in Yemen. Uh, we've worked in the past uh, around Kosovo's independence and uh, mm-hmm. the same with South Sudan, helping it get a seat at the UN during the peace process. Um, we currently work also on a more thematic approach, trying to encourage women political participation, diplomatic participation in peace processes. We feel that the more women are included in these processes, the more uh, solid the, the, the results can be. Um, and so we've helped when there was the Syrian negotiations and in the same with Yemen to have a, a higher number of women representatives of those countries to participate in these processes. And another uh, thematic approach that we've developed was the inclusion of refugee voices. All too mm-hmm. often we've seen uh, div- you know, uh, policy and diplomacy talk about the refugees, but they're often just sort of token uh, recipients of aid. And we felt that, you know, they need to be uh, to be contributing. Refugees actually uh, have their own agency, and we've seen it with the Syrian crisis. If they're uh, not happy, they use their feet and move, or and, and, and they don't wait to be spoon-fed assistance more often than not. A lot of them try to emancipate themselves, open businesses, uh, try to uh, create their own NGOs or political parties and so on. It's a vibrant society that's been completely kept at the margins of society. And so we've been trying to help and facilitate their access and um, to the diplomatic arenas and try to have a seat at UNHCR's uh, executive committee. That's sort of the governance body. And we've been quite successful so far, so we're quite happy. This is a, a project that's going well and continues. And we've managed to actually uh, secure that seat and get them to influence the Global Compact on Refugees. Excellent. Well, fascinating work that you're doing, and and congratulations with that often in pretty difficult circumstances, I presume. It is difficult, but it's also uh, very exciting. Uh, you know, more, more than often, diplomacy sometimes can be people fighting over a sentence or a comma. Uh, we're fighting and trying to get people in, the, in, in there, and uh, that, that makes the whole thing all the more exciting. Right. So, so let's move into the, into the discussion about the, uh, the Marshall Islands now, and maybe you can... Um, right. Tell listeners about a little bit more about that that place, which is uh, not entirely sovereign, according to my understanding. I mean, it's virtually sovereign, but it has a, a free association agreement with the United States, I believe. And the right. Mar- Marshall Islands, of course, is where the nuclear testing was carried out in the 1950s. The Bikini Atoll, etc., is in the Marshall Islands, mm-hmm. I think, right? There's nuclear waste and so, refuge buried indeed. there. Um, they have a lot of challenges, but none more so than climate change. Yeah. So, indeed, I mean, the Marshall Islands uh, has, a, has a history whereby um, after the Second World War, it was governed by the United States. 
and they did use the Marshall Islands to conduct between 1946 and 1958 uh, some 67 uh, nuclear test uh, bombings. Uh, you have to think that you know all these bombs, the smallest ones, was significantly larger than anything that was dropped on Japan, Hiroshima, or Nagasaki. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so 67 bombs on, on a small island state is, is quite dramatic. And that has led to the relocation of some of the population already back then. Um, if you think Bikini Island you mentioned, or Eniwatak and, and other islands, the whole population had to be relocated <clears throat> to other islands, to other atolls. Uh, in fact, the, the population on Bikini was, was, was evacuated and transferred to a small island called Kili Island. Um, and, and the issue there is that basically the island now is so small that the people can't harvest, they can't grow crops, they can't do anything. The density is such. Uh, the conditions are really difficult to the point where the Marshallese government will have to relocate people once again, uh, also because of climate change in addition. Um, but but the important thing, I mean, what, what you said, I think the Marshall Islands has had its independence and is is a sovereign state. The free agreement is is, is is an economic agreement that is akin to say what do you have with the European Union, um, and 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 so that allows for the mobility where the Marshallese can travel to the U.S. Uh, relatively freely, uh, and of course there is a, an an economic linkage to the U.S. because they still they use the the dollar and, and so on. Uh, but that's a situation that is valid for many developing countries. Um, sure. the, so they have full, they have full independence have, and full sovereignty as far as participation exactly, in the General Assembly is the concerned. Is that they have the, exactly. And, and the thing is that that means they have a seat at the UN. Uh, right. They have the capacity to influence, pass on resolutions and so on. And this is what we've been helping with, uh, trying to amplify that voice. Um, but I think that what I'd like to sort of go back to, I think, because I think for the auditors it's important, I liked how you started and introduced that discussion uh, around the habitat and around the, the, the place you call home. Mm-hmm. Um, because the Marshall Islands is often defined or depicted as a small island state, which it is. This is a definition that is used in diplomatic terms. But if you ask the Marshallese themselves, they will tell you that they prefer to think of themselves as a large ocean state. Um, and mm-hmm. that's important. Um, it's a massive, massive country. Uh, if you look at the, uh, the the territory covering a lot of water, it's only sort of 70 miles square feet. So that's not that big in terms of land mass. But um, it's 70,000 uh, se- um, 70, kilometers square miles of water. It's a massive area mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. of water. And, and, and people have lived often looking towards the sea, uh, fishing and so on. But the islands, the land is the only thing that they have to land on. Um, it's, it's a, a limited number of, of, of atolls and, and islands. And, uh, people have been, 70,000 people are inhabiting those, those, those areas. And they're really dependent for their survival on those tiny atolls. Uh, for survival, they have a very strong attachment to the land uh, uh, as a result of it. Right, um, and so this is why very early on in the in the climate negotiation, basically climate's been at the forefront of of, of their concern. 
um, nuclear, the nuclear legacy we were talking about is also very important to them because effectively this is their first experience with forcible relocation um, and, and, and they have had dire health consequences in terms of cancer rates and so on. Uh, but uh, but they know that basically they, while they face that threat of the bomb, now they face an, another existential threat, uh, which is that of climate change. How do the Marshallese feel? Uh, I mean, they're, they're in a really unique political position vis-a-vis the United States because obviously the United States did above-ground nuclear testing there which decimated the land and, of course, negatively affected the health of, you know, probably the entire population, the legacy of which continues to this day, right? Um, And yet they have all these really close economic uh, relationships now, not just using the dollar, but, um, you know, foreign aid uh, from the United States, Mm -hmm. um, uh, relative free travel arrangements between the two countries. Um, They have a very close relationship. And... I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but they very often vote together with the United States at the United Nations as well. Oftentimes, during the in those extremely lopsided votes that you often see at the General Assembly, where you might have 149 countries for a resolution and then three against the resolution, and it tends to be the United States, the Marshall Islands, and sometimes Guatemala, and then Israel. You know, um, so. How does how does that play itself out? Because on the one hand, there, you know, there there has to be some degree of discomfort and animosity for the damage that the United States has done to that country, and at the same time, um, there must be a sense of total reliance um, on the United States, and uh, that's borne out at least to a degree uh, by their voting record. Yeah. You're you're spot on with a paradox, and you know that's not specific to the Marshall Islands. You see it in the relationship between a country like France and Algeria, for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can see it in the relationship uh, between uh, you know other countries in in, in a similar circumstances. Um, I can think of the UK and Hong Kong, for instance. Right now, there's a big uh, mm-hmm. possibility of seeing many Hong Kong people go back to the UK uh, as, as as China tightens its grip on on the previous agreements. Um, I, so there, there is this paradoxical relationship. But I don't think that, uh, to be fair to that relationship, the Marshallese also sort of know the U.S. culturally. Uh, they have a good portion of their population that lives in the U.S., that worked in its military. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're culturally, uh, their affinities there. So it's not just an economic dependency. It's also a country that they understand that they have a good relationship with. Mm-hmm. Um, at, at culturally and so on, um, you know, uh, one can think of you know uh, Elvis Presley playing Hawaiian music and ukulele and all of that, and that that sort of speaks to the to the to the Marshallese as well. Um, are they concentrated anywhere? Relationship with are, is there, are, are there cities or states in the United States where they're they have high con- higher concentrations of Marshallese than elsewhere? Yes. Yes, so Where there's, there's a lot of them in Arkansas, mm-hmm. uh, which is a land, landlocked state, but the majority lives in Arkansas. Right, um, right. And uh, the, the, the rest lives in Washington State. And how, and how did they happen to go to those two states? Um, I think it's mainly driven by the military 
a lot of them joining the, the military bases and so on. Uh, uh, and then having a nucleus there, the population expanded by, you know, family linkages and people moving and going to those specific places. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, so, so this is where we see. And in fact, today, um, somewhere close to sort of a third of the population lives in the U.S. because of that free uh, ability to move. Uh, to, to, to that country. But just to go back on, 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 I'll be happy to talk about this, but just to go back on, on the point that you raised with regards to the voting pattern right. uh, at the UN. Well, I think that there's, a, you know, it's, it's certainly true on, on specific questions which do not necessarily impact the Marshall Islands directly. Uh, say, for instance, things, so whenever they can align themselves with the US to try to uh, raise uh, their voices or their visibility or their plight and say to the U.S., look, we're sympathetic to your foreign policy that, you know, therefore can we, you know, that that means we are a good partner and so on. Um, at the same time, the Marshall Islands, whenever it comes to questions that are of its own interest and its own importance, uh, will prioritize these. And, and, and even if it goes against the U.S., a good example of that is specifically climate change. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the, the Marshall Islands is, is way more progressive and way more ambitious and pushing for ambition around the issue of climate change, uh, around the issues of fisheries. They've had an, a border dispute with, uh, with the Wake Island that the U.S. claims its own while the Marshall Island claims of its own. Mm-hmm. Um, they've been pushing very ambitiously for reparations resulting from the nuclear tests. Uh, so so uh, it's, um, it's a small state of 70,000 people, but, but, uh, but they've had an ambition which has made it one of the key players in, in, in climate negotiations all of those years. Right. Um, and, and developed partnerships with uh, a lot of other countries from Chile, Costa Rica, Germany, many other countries that have tried to encourage uh, more ambitious policies around climate change and and and, and the former uh, minister of foreign affairs Tony de Broome in Paris and so on played a key role in in, in, in there and, and in trying to get all the countries to sign the agreement in fact he was the one that was sitting with the agreement on his lap and trying to get everyone's signature uh, mm-hmm. to the document mm-hmm. and now you see the US policies on climate change um, and and you can clearly see the the, the, the difference of approach uh, on on many of those topics that's for sure. So do they, do they have a formal, I, I know, you know, a number of countries in the Pacific have um, national policies in place to deal with the question of climate displacement. Um, and they tend to be countries like Vanuatu and Fiji who have uh, a range of internal uh, relocation options that low-lying countries like Kiribati and the Marshalls and, and Tuvalu and Tokelau and some of the others don't really have yep. that option. So do they have... Um, you know, have they have they answered the you know the eternal question of should we stay or should we go yet, or are they still sitting on the fence wondering whether they're going to be able to stay, uh, or putting policies in place that will enable them to stay much longer, or have they thrown up their hands and said, you know, it's a fait accompli, it's just a matter of time, so uh, let's get ready and let's go. Where, where do they stand these days? Because every country in the Pacific, um, you know, I've worked extensively in the Pacific. Um, every country has a slightly different approach to this question these days. Yeah, I would say that most countries in the Pacific and the Marshall Islands is a, is a, is a good example of it. Actually, it has a spirit of trying to fight 
to 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 the bitter end. Mm-hmm. Um, they um, the the one of the main principles that is shared even with Fiji, even when they do plan for relocation, they 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 do emphasize at first the right to remain. There is a strong attachment, and and you know it's normal. I mean, we all want to exist. Uh, not just them, us, you know, where many of us tend to forget that climate change affects everyone and, 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 and that we're all vulnerable to that. And it's just that to relative degrees and when it's going to hit us. Right. So in many ways, yes, um, I'd like to, you know, the, the, those countries have often depicted themselves as the canary, canary in the mine. Yeah. Um, and, and so, and I like that. I think that really it's, and 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 I see it because they're in in many ways their present is our future. Uh, like all the ministries now uh, streamline and and have have put at the center uh, the issue of climate change. So that climate change is not just sort of dealt by directorate just or or just you know sort of a, a ministry of transition or goodwill. No, every ministry has to ask itself whether their policies are in line with climate change and, mm-hmm. and, and combating it. Um, the country has, uh, has, is, is leading uh, with a high ambition coalition the, the, to have the most ambitious NDCs and calling other countries to do so, so that they've submitted their second NDC already with four other countries, um, Chile, the Netherlands, um, and I forgot what was the fourth one. But... Basically, they're they're going towards that, and so uh, what are they doing in so far as as displacement and and whether they've given up? Well, no, because basically there is a recognition that displacement is inevi- inevi- inevitable. Um, the but how much of it and where? So basically, there there we already notice actually the the, the increase of population in the capital island. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's Majuro, but Majuro, also yeah. Kwajalein, the the second. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas the outer atolls are slowly and incrementally losing their population, uh, where people are condensing in these areas. Mm-hmm. So uh, the the national adaptation plan will be is looking at at, at these um, at these patterns, and uh, the idea would be to try to consolidate by building seawalls, trying to find solutions the existing islands which are on the receiving end or hosting the IDP population, the mm-hmm. capital and Kwajalein, mm-hmm. um, and, and trying to think of ways of how to do this. Do they have so any, any crazy plans it, underway? Because like, there's a lot of crazy plans that are put forward in the Pacific as ways of, of enabling the yeah, people to stay longer. They're, they're, yeah, 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 there are plans. Uh, well, the Marshall Islands are realistic. <laughs> so when, when, when Japanese firms came and, and, and told them that, you know, that, that, that proposed to make floating islands and right, things like that, right. um, and, and they saw also the price tag attached to it, they were very, very realistic. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, I had a, a, yeah, I experienced that directly myself in, uh, in Kiribati, actually. Yeah, I, I ran into those right. guys <laughs> in, the, in the government offices. Um, they were selling islands. They were selling floating islands for a billion dollars. You know, needless, right. needless to say, the government no, did not purchase any. No, everyone's trying to think of, of outside the box. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, and, and that's sort of the motto of Marshall Island, of, of ID, is that you've got to listen to the people who are at the forefront. Because they usually have the best answers. They know, and we've got to support what they want. 
and not try Absolutely. to come out and sort of impose, uh, you know, crazy ideas or, or thinking outside the box. And, and experience in dealing with climate change, such as the Netherlands, shows that sometimes soft solutions, just, you know, changing sand dunes and sand banks and so on, can have a more a bigger impact than trying to fight it up. It's about trying to change sort of a little bit where where the weather patterns or or the currents are coming. For the mm-hmm. Marshall Islands, more specifically, it would be to 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 protect those two islands uh, or the two atolls so that the population can remain there. Um, and 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 that can happen through uh, building seawalls, defenses, but also sort of trying to uh, help the coral uh, that 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 live. Uh, and actually form the basis upon which the island rests. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, I think the biggest problem that, because people tend to think that uh, sea level rise, when when we hear this, we think, okay, that's it, the sea is going to rise so much that it's going to subdue all of these islands. In fact, this is not going to happen so so rapidly. I think I think the sinking sinking element of it is not really the main threat that these countries face today. What they face is a threat um, of, of overwash. Um, right. So when you have a big wave that sort of comes over the island and so on. And there, because what happens is that it threatens uh, the capacity of those islands to regenerate in terms of food production. So right. they're increasingly faced with droughts. Um, and they're also increasingly facing uh, water shortages because the, 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 the drinkable water uh, wells and 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 storage becomes contaminated with brackish and salty water. Right. So, right. in effect, it's not so much the full sinking of the island that's the main threat. It's it's these situation which make the islands or the land increasingly uninhabitable. So, so the the plans, if you like, is to try to find ways of maintaining uh, resources for for food and and food security and and water security. Uh, as well as sanitation, obviously, as the density of the population increases in those areas. Yeah, absolutely. And they, they, I don't know if they have this problem, uh, but many other island uh, atoll nations do, where the water, the seawater actually bubbles through the very porous soil, which is, you know, coral-based. Yeah. So you have seawater coming from underneath, you have overwash coming over the top, combined with, you know, a lack of potable drinking water, and then less and less land that's capable of actually growing food. And yeah, it's a it's a whole series of things that are happening, you know, slowly but but continually, that is making life ever more difficult in these places. But they do generally try to fight back as much as they can. And so, what would happen? Like, here's a scenario, a radical scenario to um, to discuss. So obviously, they're in the pro western camp generally speaking i would uh, i would say given their relationship to the united states maybe not exclusively particularly on climate change issues but they would be more in the uh, in that direction than uh some other countries um as you know in the pacific there's a battle between china and taiwan for recognition and you know taiwan used to be winning that battle quite quite considerably and they'd have uh, official uh, you know, embassies and other buildings in in many of the Pacific Island nations who decided to recognize only Taiwan instead of the People's Republic of China, and slowly but surely that the number of countries that are doing that has declined um, in the Pacific specifically, and so the role of China and the presence of China is much greater than it's ever been. Um, so, 
uh, how does the government now of the Marshall Islands relate in particular um, to China? Uh, do you notice any changes in their policy? You know, China, legally or not, was able to transform the Spratly Islands in the South China Sea from sandbars into uh, airports capable of handling military-level jets in a couple of years' time. Um, so technologically, um, the possibility of saving a place such as the Marshall Islands or some of the other islands really exists much more than people realize using pre-existing technology. Right. So what would happen if China one day came up to them and said, hey, look what we did in the South China Sea. Would you like us to do that for you in the Marshall Islands? It would enable you to stay here for another 200 years. How about it? But you have to, you have to change your policy towards some other countries, though. You know, what would happen if that occurred? Because I can easily imagine that happening. At least, it, you know, they would throw well, it out there as an option. To be honest, Scott, if, if you look at what's really happening, I mean, the, the suggestion you're making is not really on the table. I mean, what is happening right now is that China is actually approaching many of the, of, of the Pacific countries. Solomon Islands and, mm -hmm. and, and others have actually... Uh, only recently decided to recognize China right. uh, and not Taiwan anymore, mm -hmm. um, in line with exactly what you're describing. But the promise that China is making is only in terms of loans. Mm -hmm. So they're promising them money, but in terms of loan with a high you know, interest uh, in terms of return uh, for, for the loan, uh, in line with this, uh, the policy that initiative. they've had. Uh, mm -hmm. the Silk Road, and so on. Mm -hmm. Whereas Taiwan actually supports its allies, uh, not in terms of loan, but in terms of direct financial aid, mm -hmm. um, so that the countries don't have to pay back. Mm -hmm. So insofar as... Uh, so there hasn't been any discussions in terms of constructing anything uh, at that level. Whereas uh, Taiwan... So Taiwan also has a benefit uh, it, it, in if you look at what happened with COVID-19, it's one of the first countries to actually sound the alarm. Mm -hmm. uh, it was not really noticed at the beginning because uh, because all the attention was on China and WHO, the World Health Organization, so the, the health UN body, mm -hmm. uh, included Taiwan as part of its statistics under China. So it was not really visible. But mm -hmm. if, for those that looked at these issues, Taiwan actually responded very rapidly and very, very well. And actually, uh, that's the reason why many of Taiwan's allies to this day don't have any COVID cases. Uh, Marshall Islands is one of the very few countries to have zero cases because uh, Taiwan recommended very early on and gave them a lot of uh, information and, and data and support. Um, and they closed the border very rapidly and took the, the necessary measure to the point that they have no, no case today. Wow, um, remarkable. So, so, so they, they benefit from it. Um, so they're one of the countries. Sorry, they're one of the countries that does recognize Taiwan now, as of 2020. So, so Marshall Islands has a two-China policy. Uh -huh. So they're not just saying it's just Taiwan or just China. It actually has relationship with both countries mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. recognizes countries. Yeah, right. And uh, and and of course, it's close to 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 Taiwan, but it does have economic. Uh, discussions and, and diplomatic discussions with China as well. How many other do you know the other countries in the Pacific that recognize exclusively Taiwan as the Chinese seat of the UN? Um, gosh, you're cutting me off guard. I think there are two or three. Uh, I mean, uh, in the world, there's about 15 countries that do so. And in the Pacific itself, there used to be seven or eight, but over the last two years, China has been 
aggressively trying to to take over so that um, now they're I think they're down to three or four uh, countries other than the Marshall Islands to uh, keep relationship with Taiwan. Uh, the, the the last sort of shift their policy was was as I said the Solomon Island, mm-hmm. and it's been a concern for for the Marshall Islands. I mean, in 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 Australia, people are probably aware there's this uh, uh, show called Sixty Minutes that mm-hmm. uh, actually looked at the issue, and I think it was very revealing uh, that uh, the what happens is that when when countries do that shift, it often comes with a threat to their democracies up to a certain extent because bringing in a lot of loan and a lot of money uh, has pernicious effects on, on, on many governments in terms of freedom of speech, uh, if you're not happy with that decision, uh, in terms of you know the democracy threat that it, it poses. And, and, and Marshall Island is a small country, but it is a democracy and it's a, it's a very vivid, you know, vibrant democracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've just had a change of government in, 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 in December of this year. Um, and, and there's been several governments ever since, uh, their independence. So, uh, these policy matters that we're discussing have many repercussions, uh, for many of these countries and explain sure. why the Marshall Islands is, uh, sometimes seen as close to the West and so on because of its adherence to the rule of law uh, and democracy and, and and so on. Right? Do they see, are they feeling threatened by China or are they just taking a cautious approach or are they happy with the status quo? Well, I think they are feeling a bit threatened, uh, but I I can't on their behalf on, on, on that particular point because I'm, 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 that, that hasn't been I haven't really focused on that question um, so, so but it's you know when when I was living in Bangkok and everyone in, who, who has ever lived in, in the region knows that China is, is a big 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 state to be uh, working with and, 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 and increasingly even now it's got international ramifications it's like living on you know the, the 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 sides or the borders of something like the Roman Empire, um, and so everything it does influences uh, everything else. I mean, look at the COVID uh, situation was was a case in point. Um, it turns out that a lot of the medicine, um, you know, painkillers, not just the masks and all of that, were produced in China, and 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 with the shortages that came. Many countries, even in the West, even I'm currently in France, there we, we France started to uh, put um, a number of how many pills, uh, painkillers, paracetamol you could buy per week per citizen. Things that people didn't really notice because we were so focused on the masks. But mm-hmm. if you develop symptoms with COVID and you start having fever and so on, you need those painkillers. But then you need those painkillers if you have any other. Uh, issue, uh, you know, from streptococcus to I don't know what. So, so yeah, it is. Of course, it's um, the the size and the importance of every country has an impact on 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 its small neighbors. Uh, the, the 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 issue more than the question about the growth of China is the question of where are are there where are the other uh, big players that were balancing the Pacific out? Uh, if if China can take over and can can um, take over a more aggressive policy towards, you know, uh, expanding its influence. Uh, w- the U.S. used to be quite a big influence in the Pacific. Uh, Australia and New Zealand still are up to some extent, but the, the balance of it is not really working out anymore. So I think really mm-hmm. that's what you've got to ask yourself is, 
what role can play the, the Pacific uh, Island Forum? How can all those regional bodies actually make up for and balance this so that everyone take, gets a fair deal out of this? Well, and don't forget France. Don't forget your country. <laughs> you know, there's, they yeah. play a big role in the Pacific too. You know, much bigger than most people uh, realize. You know, I mean, New Caledonia remains French territory, and Tahiti remains French territory, and uh, what Wallace and Fortuna, I think, is French territory. Yeah. There's all sorts of French colonies still over there, with which receive very large sums of public expenditure each year from Paris. You know, so you have a lot of players in that you know, powerful players in that region, you know, which is generally seen as this, you know, placid, peaceful, uh, you know, tourist haven sort of place. Um, but in fact, it's a, it's now a, a geopolitical chessboard in many ways. But I mean, for me, for me, the question, uh, you know, bringing the dime- the French dimension to this is an interesting thing because mm-hmm. then you start thinking, okay, but regardless of that big China uh you know, the, that geopolitics, at the end of the day, what really matters to the people in all those regions is that, you know, most of them are going to be confronted with challenges coming from uh, climate change. And I shouldn't use the mm-hmm. future tense. It's already, those countries are already being impacted. As I said, their, pre- their present is our future. Yeah. Um, and, and so for, for, for Tahiti, for all those French uh, overseas territories, um, the question of the displacement of their population and 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 the handling of this should actually uh, raise awareness in 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 Paris and 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 mobilize the country a little bit more. Um, I mean, one one thing that I've been thinking about and looking at is, for instance, for the Marshall Islands and many of the can of the ASEAN countries, mm-hmm. the threat of losing some of its uh, economic exclusive zones, so the water that they have. Uh, access to in, in, in terms of resources mm-hmm. where they can conduct fisheries or, 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 or exploit the seabed um, is a big outstanding question. There is absolutely no precedent, no legal frameworks to say what's going to happen uh, as a result of, of, of the rising seas, but also the in, uninhabitability of, of some of these islands. And, and, and when you look at the EEZ in, in the world, you can just look it up on Wikipedia. France is probably, one, I think, is the number one or the second largest countries with the EEZ because of those possessions. So yeah, it, it is a player uh, just like the Marshall Islands and so on, who are probably seventh or something um, in terms of large oceanic countries. Um, and right, so is the UK. Right. And so they, they, they should be playing a role there as well in terms of finding um, innovative and progressive solutions in handling these issues. Yeah, because, you know, one of the things we always point out when we are working on Pacific issues is that, you know, the Pacific Islands do very justifiably get the, the lion's share of attention when, uh, when the international media talks about climate displacement and, and the need to move from one's own country to somewhere else. Um, and that's very, very, very logical and justifiable that they should get, you know, the, the lion's share of, of attention on that matter. Um, but in terms of p- pure numbers of people, pure numbers of human beings, um, it's incredibly small in terms of the overall global population that's going to have to move because of climate change. So that's not to undermine or underplay the topic, but to say that actually solving it might be a lot easier than people generally assume, because 
in the end, if we don't talk about displacement in Papua New Guinea, which is by far the biggest uh, Pacific country, um, and just mm-hmm. only talk about the smaller island nations as well as the colonies and territories that are there, um, it's maybe six, maybe eight million people max in in the long term right. that will need to find a new place to live. And that's a huge, 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 huge undertaking to find new places and and the implications for every single person are, are, are just beyond belief. At the same time, you know, Bangladesh alone is, go- is going to need to find new homes for 30 to 45 million people. And that's just one country in South Asia, you know, not to mention what's going to happen in Vietnam and in China itself, by the way, and in Myanmar and in India and in the United States and so many other places. So, you know, that, that huge number, but at the same time, you know, I, I really believe that if the leading uh, external powers in that region who are the economic powerhouses of the world, essentially. We've just named them all. You know, China, Taiwan, United States, European Union, France in, in particular, and, and the United Kingdom in particular, Australia and New Zealand. If they were to co- all come together um, with the Pacific Island nations and examine proposals from the Pacific Island nations for viable, you know, rights-based, pro-people long-term solutions to climate displacement in the region, I, I'm reasonably hopeful that a that a very detailed, very funded, well-funded action plan could be put in place that would protect, allow people to stay as long as possible, um, even, re, you know, replenish land resources in some of the places to a degree that would allow habitability for maybe a hundred more years than we think now is possible. And then to provide, you know, legal pathways um, by which each one of those countries, each one of the communities, each one of the, you know, tribes or wantoks in the case of the Sol- uh, Solomon Islands and others could actually move together if they needed to and if they wanted to um, as a collective, as a group to safer land uh, locations. So I think we need to start thinking, you know, in those directions and not ne- neither take the approach of, we're staying forever, you know, no what, no matter what, and I'll be the last man standing on the island and things like that. And that's cool. Like, I understand that approach totally. And I've talked to lots of people that have that approach. Um, all the way to the other end of the spectrum, which is let's leave now and let's, you know, just cut our losses and go. And then there's, of course, most people are somewhere in the middle. And, that you know, that's one thing I've always found Working in the Pacific, is I still, to this day, have never spoken to a family who had not already considered what their options are going to be when the day comes that they feel like they have to move, you know? This is something that's a living reality, you know, for every single family in that region. It's not something like, oh, if dad lost his job and, and we had no more money, where would we move to? It's like, sooner or later, in this generation or the next... All of us are going to have to move. So where and how and through which legal mechanism? And will we do it by immigrating? Will we do it by calling ourselves refugees? Will we do it by family reunification measures? I mean, every single family's thought about it, you know? So it's a reality. And I think that's the real challenge for the world in 2020 is to recognize that this is a real thing. No one really wants to move and certainly not to give up entirely on their country. So bearing all of that in mind, what is the best way forward? You know, and we, yes, we can have the Paris Agreement, and yes, we can reduce CO2 emissions, and 
and we can do all sorts of things to li- you know live in a more sustainable way. But probably that's not going to assist the low-lying island nations as much as we would hope it would. And I you know I think it's time to really start thinking about much more uh, you know large-scale uh, heretofore unrealistic-sounding solutions. You know, but that may become um, the only way of grappling with this challenge. Yeah, I, I, I you spot on. I mean, what you just described, and I think that um, that reality, and this is why I keep on on, on banging that the, the present, their present is our future, is that this mobility is not just going to impact what you know what we call the hotspots, so the the, the areas where. Uh, that that will be more dramatically impacted uh, by climate change than the others. It's actually we're all vulnerable to this and we are all going to contemplate uh, this. And I think that the, the experience of the confinement for many of us in, 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 due to COVID is this one, is that you start realizing that um, the, the, the urban areas in the cities in the West and in others are not just, are not um, adequate to actually uh, respond to these crises. So we expect uh, an urban uh, movement out of the biggest cities to repopulate uh, rural areas, um, redevelop alternatives. And that is exactly the same kind of mentality and philosophy that you find in, in the um, in the atoll nations and in others and in, and in the, the Pacific countries. Mobility is one adaptation measure. And people sure. have to have to see it that way. It's not mm-hmm. just um, a, a dire consequence. It is a form of adaptation, and, and 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 adaptation needs to be planned, and it needs to be planned and organized early for it to be the most effective and and the most constructive, and and so that it helps most of the people rather than be seen as as a threat. And and, and what you see often with conflicts uh, when you don't really have the time to plan for these things. Do you, I mean, is the presumption that, you know, if things get really bad and uh, sea levels rise faster than we thought and uh, people have to leave sooner than they thought, um, is the presumption that most Marshallese are going to be uh, allowed to settle in the United States? Or is that no longer on the table because of the restrictive immigration policies of the Trump administration? Well, I mean, they have a specific status where Marshallese can travel to the U.S. because of the of the of the agreement that they have with the U.S. So, uh, and the relatives that they have there. So, in, is that in still fact, in place, as far as you know? It's still in place. It hasn't been. Um, it hasn't changed. So, so, so that they can go to the U.S. But uh, really, I'd like to emphasize that I I don't think that the whole Marshallese population will go. What we see already is we see certain segments of the population, those that can actually go and seek out employment and so on, while uh, the elderly and the very young tend to stay behind Mm -hmm. uh, in the islands. So it's changing the demographics of the population, if you like. Uh, But at the same time, it's anchoring them in in, in some of the places. And obviously, one one big challenge for, for... on the long run, will be preservation of culture and identity and, and, and knowledge um, of, of the old ways and the culture. And these are essential things to preserve. Um, and and so yeah. we also have to include this in terms of adaptation. When, if, if some 
of the if a segment of the population is displaced uh how can you ensure that that displacement uh whether there are mitigating factors to preserve uh, the culture and the identity of the population yeah absolutely and then you know the role of land is just so fundamental it's fundamental everywhere but it's really fundamental in the pacific and uh you know so much of land still is held customarily in in huge parts of the pacific and you know a lot of people are living on the same land that their ancestors lived on for hundreds of years and their ancestors happen to often be buried on that very same small parcel of land so when you ask someone to move i mean you're asking them to do so much more than what we would have to endure if we had to move you know they're losing I mean, they have an, like an indigenous relationship with their land, where their land and themselves is the same thing. You cannot separate a human Indeed. from the land. The land is you, and you are the land. So you're you're ask you're ripping them out of that, and then you're forcing them to leave behind, you know, the uh, uh, their ancestors who are buried there, and then so many of the cultural attributes which are so closely linked to the land as well. And you know, so it's a, it's just comprehensively shattering you know to people when you ask them or encourage them uh, to move even if it's the only option available to them you know so you know we as much as possible take always take the position that you know you should if people can stay and they want to stay they should be facilitated to stay and no one should be coercively removed um, unless it's clearly um, you know, going to result in their death if they stay um, or some sort of extreme set of circumstances is present. Um, but at the same time, it's, you know, I always find, and, and it would be interesting to hear your thoughts on this, um, you know, very often when I've been in the Pacific and uh, writing reports and doing analysis and, and giving advice to governments, etc., cetera, um, I actually find it harder in those places than in many other places in the world um, you know, war zone type places or disaster zone type places or slums or wherever else, um, there you can pretty quickly identify what the problem is and quickly identify who the bad guy is and who the victim is and the, what laws are at play and what policies are at play and what should be done to fix the problem. Even if it's not politically feasible, you still have to propose something that's, you know, human rights specific that can solve a serious problem. In the Pacific, I've, you know, every time, and I think a lot of people share this, um, you know, it's so difficult to to advise them, you know, conscientiously regarding this question of fight or flight. Because the second you push even 51% in one direction over versus the 49% in the other direction of staying versus, you know, leaving, um, the balance gets tipped and that once that balance gets tipped too far in one direction, you can never tip it back, you know? So if you really, really, really focus on, on leaving and you say, you know, we've bought land in other countries, we're encouraging people to flee, we have dignified migration, like in, you know, the, um, in Kiribati, etc. Um, they haven't given up yet, but they're, the tendency of the previous government, at least, was really like, well, we'll probably have to go. So it has to be migration with dignity, et cetera. And they bought 6,000 acres of land in Fiji, et cetera, to potentially resettle them. Um, you know, once that right. takes on an even more tangible substance, then who's going to invest in that country ever again, domestically or internationally? You know, 
Who's going to repair houses that are starting to fall apart? Who's going to put money into hospitals or repair the roads or, you know, so on and so forth? If the feeling collectively is that, oh, well, we're probably going to give up. So why, why waste money, you know, fixing it up now? Um, on the other hand, right. if you put all the eggs in the stay basket, you can also be people, you can also create, you know, totally false expe expectations and false hopes in the population that they'll be able to stay for, you know, the long haul. Um, and in fact, you know, by doing that, um, maybe it actually ends up hurting them more because you encourage them to stay when they probably should have out of safety concerns um, moved earlier, you know? So it's really, it's, it's so far from bl being a black and white decision, you know, it's just one gigantic palette of gray and knowing precisely what to do in each case is, you know, particularly for the really, really low-lying countries, a very, very difficult approach. So what do you think? You got any thoughts on that? Actually, I mean, I'd like to hear more of your experience on this. I find it particularly interesting. My, 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 my knowledge on, on the Kiribati is that afterwards you had a government that sort of swung completely on the other side, um, almost on the verge of, of climate denial, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I, I don't know whether I have a feeling this may have changed since, but um, that, uh, you know, I'd, I'd be keen to sort of hear from you also. What you know, what what those what this has as an impact when when the government changes again and so on. Uh, but but to answer sort of your more direct thing is, I think my my approach and the way that I advise the Marshall Islands and and I think the Marshall Islands also sort of sympathetic to this is that uh, because you can see it in their national adaptation. Uh, plan discussions around it is it's a bit like the international red cross and the humanitarian movement um you plan for the worst and hope for the best mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. you've got to do a sort of a contingency plan but at the same time the the the, the, the contingency plan is exactly that it's a contingency it's not just the reality and 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 there is a whole spectrum between the worst case scenario and the best case scenario. And, and so you've got to plan for the worst, but then sort of, uh, work towards maximizing as much as mitigating as much as possible, uh, that scenario so that you can come even at the middle. So it's unrealistic to think that no one's going to be displaced, but it's equally unfair to think that, you know, everything's going to disappear. As I said, the mm -hmm. Marshall Islands, uh, the, 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 what we call the, the global mean, the, the mean sea level average mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is not going to rise as much, uh, as we think so that everything, all the islands are going to vanish and disappear. They still may have a capacity with some adaptive, adaptive measures, keep and retain some part of their population or keep uh, a part of their sovereignty and so on. So what you want mm -hmm. is to maximize it while at the same time, uh, help them with with uh, with uh, the migration or the displacement of the rest of the population as as that will dwindle. And to be honest, that's true for the Marshall Islands. But you think of areas where the heat is going to become intolerable. I think of Basra in Iraq. I mm -hmm. think of uh, Saudi Arabia. You can think of the people living in the Sahara Desert. They're going to be confronted with exactly the same sort of problem. Yeah, Australia uh, too. Great chunks. Yeah. Yeah, and great chunks of, of their, their, their territory is going to effectively become uninhabitable. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and how do you uh, 
how do you uh, help the population move and, and densify at the same time maintain an acceptable uh, way of feeding those people um, so uh, but 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 the the I'm interested in, in, in that point that you said about sort of changing governments and, and all of that and how can how does this play out or uh, how this has played out until now. Yeah, well, that's a that's a very big topic, but let me let me come back to that in one second, just to and and also to add to the list of countries we just mentioned in terms of heat. Um, India is going to be particularly hard hit um, in that in that way, where huge parts of the country are going to become effectively uninhabitable. Um, and you could live inside a you know a shell of a house with aircon going twenty four seven, and maybe survive. But the second you went outside, you know you'd have to come back in within thirty seconds because it's fifty eight degrees outside or whatever it may be. Right. So what that forces us to you know contemplate, and what governments everywhere should be doing, and what the you know the UN should be doing, and everyone else is, you know it's it's not that difficult. Um, as we know with COVID, again, you know, you hear the word modeling all the time, right? It's all about modeling. There's a, you know, worst case scenario, best case scenario, in between scenario. Climate change modeling happens globally all the time as well. Um, but it tends to happen at a more sort of meteorological level and not so much at the human level. And so, you know, one of the things we always recommend uh, for any country that has a coastline, start just with the coastlines, you know, aside from the drought and heat question, just the rising sea level question, do basic diagnostic work and see where people are going, where people are living now who are no longer going to be able to live there in 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, according to various levels of sea level rise, right? That's not that difficult to do these days. Um, so we need to assess and diagnose where people are that will have to move and where they could possibly move to. And that's why we've worked you know, for years now on this whole question of land solutions for climate displacement. So land, new land for lost land, new homes for lost homes. And um, that can also be done in terms of um, excess heat. So whether it's Australia or Saudi Arabia or, uh, you know, other parts of the Gulf, Sub-Saharan Africa, etc. Um, it's not that difficult to calculate how many people are living there now, where safe zones could possibly be found. Um, and then, it really comes down to policy and prioritization, you know, by those different governments. Um, <coughs> excuse me, you know, what is the effective and, and appropriate role of the state vis-a-vis -vis those people? Is the role of the right. state to do nothing and just give people all the freedom in the world to s settle their own problems themselves? Or is the appropriate role of the state to actually be interventionary within the economy um, and facilitate the emergence of small and intermediate-sized cities, for instance, or you know, vill larger villages where people could go to, um, subsidize them, um, ensure that people get some sort of mechanism that would enable them to very easily access a new home or quickly construct one. Um, you know, and the list goes on and on and on. We could talk about that for days, but you know, the role of the state and government generally. And COVID again has played, you know, borne this out is fundamental to making sure that people don't suffer excessively when it comes to having to move because of climate change excesses, whether along a coastline or uh, in a desert or a hot place, you know. So without going on too much detail on that front, um, that's the direction I believe we generally need to you know, move into. We, most places in the world have not been um, uh, sufficiently diagnosed 
in terms of who's going to be affected, how many and where they will go. Um, and even less work has been done to identify alternative places where they could go en masse in a way that, you know, reduced human suffering to the maximum possible extent. And, you know, little bits and pieces of that work have been done. We've done a lot of it ourselves at Displacement Solutions and, and elsewhere. But I think that's the direction every country needs to go into is, you know, where are the people living that are threatened? Where can they possibly go? And then what are the financial implications involved? If you take Australia, you know, one of the wealthiest countries on earth, you know, we're a coastal country, obviously, uh, world's biggest island, um, and 300,000 coastal properties in Australia will be subject to permanent inundation due to rising sea levels, according to government reports from the past decade, you know? So, we know the number and we know the economic value is right. is about $300 billion of losses that are expected. You know, the missing link is what's the policy for those people? What are the laws for those people? What, what does the insurance industry say about those people? Should those people be allowed to sell their, their beautiful coastal houses to people who are less educated than them about the threats of climate change? And isn't that fraud if you'd allow that to happen? You know, some municipalities in, in Australia have had to reverse um, pre-existing planning decisions by the local um, council, the local government, where they allowed development projects to proceed in areas that are going to be more quickly inundated by rising sea levels than they thought initially. And they sold you know, land parcels to individual families. And now they've decided to reverse those planning decisions because they're fearful of, you know, large scale lawsuits down the road for having allowed people to build right. in dangerous places. So, you know, that's just one example. And, and you know, and there's still a long ways to go. And Australia's overall climate change policy is by no means, uh, you know, one of the more progressive ones. Um but every country needs to do that kind of work, you know, and, and including, you know, the the Pacific Island countries and the ones that are most heavily affected. And they are doing that to a certain degree. Um, it's just there always comes down to that bias, which we're talking about. And back to your you know, original question um, between the stay crowd and the go crowd. And you basically had that play itself out in um, uh, in Kiribati, you know, where the previous government, the Anote Tong government, which was very well known internationally, I mean, it was incredibly active in getting mm -hmm. climate change on the international agenda. Um, you know, he also didn't want to go, and he, you know, his colleagues and supporters don't don't want to go um, at all. They love the country just, you know, immensely, um, and the culture in particular, and and everything else. Um, but they also realized that you know it's highly likely that they would have to go eventually. So. You know, why not plan accordingly and why not buy land in another country that, you know, gives them a fallback position if they had nowhere else to go literally? And why not try to train people to get jobs in countries like Australia in sectors where they would more easily get an immigration visa? You know, so they had a, mm -hmm. a program where they trained mechanics, car mechanics and nurses, um, because there was shortage of those in Australia and they knew that. And, um, people who had those qualifications could more easily get immigration status in Australia. So they had a lot of really creative uh, and uh, really interesting approaches, including the migration with dignity line. You know, they do not want to be refugees, you know, and they insist on that. Right. And you hear that a lot amongst people in the Pacific. You know, we are not refugees. We're not blaming our government. Our government did not persecute us. Our government is not throwing us out and torturing us. Not at all. We live in democracies, you know. Um, where the Indeed. rule of law works. Um, 
the reason we're leaving is because of climate change. And, and that was not caused by our government at all. It's caused by other countries elsewhere, you know, very far, far away. So don't call us refugees per se. Not, and it's not has nothing to do with the legal status of refugee and how that's defined in the in the 1951 Refugee Convention. It has to do with the simple question of they don't want to be seen as refugees and they most certainly don't want to be arrested um, as they would be in Australia if they came, you know, unofficially in a boat. <laughs> and then they'd be put on these horrible islands, you know, um, in uh, in Nauru and Papua New Guinea, and they don't want that status. Um, so you know, very sophisticated policy, and then. They were voted out of power, and then, you know, a much more, um, you know, let's stay and and fight sort of thing, and you know, the Lord will take care of us, and things like that were the approaches. You know, the the role of Christianity in the Pacific also needs to always be taken into account in terms of policy development. Right. And you know, I, I I think I read not long ago that about a third uh, a third of the population is sufficiently, uh, you know, dedicated to Christianity to believe uh, what many of the, uh, you know, the pastors and the preachers, the priests, uh, the religious figures tell them, which is that, you know, there's only one flood mentioned in the Bible, um, the famous Noah's Ark flood. And because there's only one flood mentioned, there will never be a second one. So obviously we're never going to be inundated by a flood because the Bible doesn't mention a second flood. And a lot of people like truly take that to heart and they, they actually believe that. And, you know, that, that has a big role to play too in terms of guiding government decision-making when you have, you know, significant numbers of people, voters, um, believing that um, sort of approach. So, you know, there's, once again, there's so, for such a small number of people, there's just so many issues <laughs> at play, you know, and, um, it's quite extraordinary, really, when you consider the the amount of issues that such a small overall population has to grapple with, you know? And that's always an impressive thing to me with the small countries you know, generally, not not just the ones that are threatened by climate change, but, you know, these countries with 50,000, 80,000, 160,000 people, you know, they have to have a foreign ministry, and they have to have a housing ministry, and they have to have a land ministry, and they have to have a health ministry, and they have to have all these things, a National Olympic Committee. You know, they have to have all these things that all the other governments in the world have, but oftentimes you only have two people in each institution, you know? And that must right. be something that you deal with a lot, actually, at, at Independent Diplomat, you know, working with governments that, you know, might have a foreign ministry of a handful of people, uh, whereas, you know, the foreign ministry of the bigger countries, you know, literally thousands and thousands of staff. Yeah, it is. It's definitely uh, the, the case. Uh, the Marshall Islands, well, to give you an idea of scale, for instance, the uh, Marshall Island has a representative in Geneva. Mm -hmm. And uh, so she is a representative to the Human Rights Council, which is based in Geneva, mm -hmm. but also to the UNESCO in Paris, to the IAEA in uh, Vienna and FAO in Rome because it's the only mission in the whole of Europe. Amazing. Uh, so it gives you the scale of, of, of her coverage, um, and she's alone. Um, so, so, so it's, uh, it's, it's challenging to yeah. say the least. But I think that, um, you're, you're, so, so indeed, it's, it's, uh, it's something that would uh, be, this is why we try to amplify that message, and this is why we try to do our best to help them out. Um, deliver their message and their plight and their ambition beyond. And, and I think that your point about um, 
insurances and, and having data is, is definitely one that's at the top of the of the Marshall Islands. Uh, the, there is a need for them to understand better and have data. Um, and it's not just in terms of adaptation. It's also in terms of disaster risk reduction, right? Mm-hmm. Where sure. do you put the population so that when uh, typhoons and others arrive, uh, all of this, it's, it's, um, it's just a matter of sound planning. Um, so, so that in the Marshall Islands, you probably have the reverse of, of what you have in Australia in the sense that the policies and the governments are receptive, but the, because they don't have the means that the information has been lacking. Uh, so it's not a question of will, uh, it's a question of means. Uh, what you get in the, the, the Western countries and, and, and developed countries like, like Australia is probably the reverse situation where for a long time the means were there but the will wasn't um, mm-hmm. to change things or to quantify and all of that. Because in effect, that would you'd be confronted immediately with the reality that you know climate change is not something for the future but it's already happening. Uh, you look at Florida, you look at the insurance of the properties in, in there and so on and it's starting to already... Um, to, to, to start to be a, a reality that is impacting them economically. Uh, one, and I, I, and right. I invite your listeners to actually l- go and, and look at the insurance uh, companies because they're at the forefront in terms of the private sector uh, and they have um, a no-bullshit approach, if, if I can use that term, uh, to the problem. Uh, one, one good example is uh, you know, when, when the whole world and the Marshall Island is clearly championing and calling for 1.5 degrees, trying to uh, change our emissions and so on and mitigate the climate change so that we remain within 1.5 mm-hmm. uh, or at worst 2 degrees, uh, the insurance companies are already acknowledging that we are on path to 3.5. So the market, the insurance market is already working on a 3.5 increase. And that's a whole different world that we are not exposed to. And and for many of these companies, they think that a world at 3.5 is not something that they can insure. Uh, and so it is already having quite an impact at that level. Yeah, it will be uh, very interesting to see how things go in the insurance sector in the coming years, you know, because uh, we can only imagine, you know, they're, they're in it as all businesses are, to make a profit, right? But they also have to right. pay, they also have to pay out policies, um, uh, you know, that are are designed to protect people against extreme events. You know, whether it's fire or uh, mm-hmm. theft or you know damage to your home or you know acts of God and storms and climate change and, and so on. And how they eventually formulate climate change concerns within the context of you know generic in, uh, insurance policies will be super interesting you know the whole question of causation you know my house was no longer habitable because of climate change well they'll say prove it you know and that that's where big problems will arise of course and they'll try to get out of paying you know but the bigger question of course is the vast majority of the human race is not going to have access to any sort of climate change insurance right (laughs) it's just not going to happen um much like today you know most of the world doesn't have access to life insurance, for instance, um, let alone other other forms of insurance. So, you know, this is really kind of a rich world problem in many respects. Um, so it'll be interesting to see, you know, how it plays itself out. 
Um, but yeah, the people of the Sol- of uh, the Marshall Islands and and Solomon Islands and everywhere else in the Pacific and the Caribbean and parts of the other oceans in the world are really um, indeed the canary in the coal mine of what what is happening and what will happen on the climate change front. You know, if all the ice melts from Antarctica to the Arctic to Greenland and the glaciers, then all bets are off for everything because then sea levels rise, you know, 68 meters then we're in really big trouble, right? right? <laughs> and no matter how high yeah. you try to build or reinforce a seawall or make artificial islands that stretch hundreds of meters into the sky, that's just not going to happen and not going to save them. I mean, we had this one, you know, speaking of crazy ideas, um, it was really just, you know, pie in the sky sort of idea, but it was fun to contemplate it. We had this idea that I, I used to, um, collaborate sometimes with a guy who had links to the um, uh, to the shipping industry, and he told me out of the blue one day that you know somewhere in the range of I think it was two hundred or four hundred um, uh, super tanker sized ships sit empty at any given moment all around the world every day, right? And he really cared a lot about climate change, and I said, why don't we go? Why don't we just take five of those and travel the entire perimeter of the Pacific? and have each country give a million cubic square meters of soil, put it into the hold of these ships, and then show up at some of the really vulnerable Pacific Island nations and give them the soil for free so that they can reinforce um, atolls and islands and make them you know, six, eight, ten meters above sea level and enable them to stay there for a longer period of time. You know, um, mm-hmm. Obviously, we didn't do it, but you know, in a crazy world, sometimes you need to have crazy ideas like that because... Um, I yeah. like the idea. Yeah, um, I mean, that's really solidarity. To, that's real global solidarity right there. It is. And, and because it's been very difficult for, for, for those countries, such as the Marshall Islands and so on, um, because if they don't get that kind of support, it means that they're going to have to sacrifice some of their own in order to actually uh, support the rest. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's an impossible decision for them to make. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've had, you know, people, that is a kind of obviously a pie in the sky idea. And I mean, technically it's possible, right? But to arrange that um, without the backing of, you know, tens of millions of dollars uh, would be really difficult to do. But who knows, you know, let's put the idea out there and see if somebody takes it up. Um, but I've I've had, uh, you know, at length conversations with ministers in the government of Tuvalu, for instance, about how to increase the land level, the elevation level of uh, portions of the capital city, Funafuti, um, by five to eight Mm -hmm. meters. Um, And then they could build government buildings and other things on top of that raised piece of land uh, and housing accommodation so that they would be enabled to have a a permanent human population, which is one of the criteria for statehood, of course, um, for 100, maybe 200 additional years over and above what they would have now if they did nothing, you know, and once again, right. we, I don't think they pursued the idea in any sort of concrete way. Um, but they were serious enough about it that, that we spent hours and hours discussing how it could be done with engineers and everything else. So, I mean, that's the level that we've reached that, you know, like people are thinking of raising the level of islands in the middle of absolute nowhere in the Pacific Tuvalu, you know, um, in order to save, the country's physical existence. And that's just, you know, 
so dramatic to imagine that we're living in those times. You know, I mean, this is really the first time in the in recorded history where where I mean, plenty of countries have lost their sovereignty and lost their name and lost their you know um, position in the world, largely through warfare and conquest and the death of empires and things like that. Um, but very few countries have been physically erased from planet Earth's uh, land surface, you know. And that's the sort of reality that we're grappling with now. If things go really bad and, and temperatures increase at, at uh, more speedy rates than we anticipated, and, and thus ice melts more quickly, um, we're going to have situations where the, literally not a trace remains of some of these currently sovereign nation states. You know, which is just beyond well, belief. Yeah. You're comp- the, 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 the magnitude of the problem is almost a geological one. We're leaving the Holocene uh, period, which is the period right, of right. stable pattern of weather. Um, and we're entering, we're exiting that phase. If we look at what the world looked like before the Holocene, that takes us back uh somewhere between 50 to 20,000 years, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, back. Um, And at that time, uh, the the whole of Europe was beneath three kilometers of ice. Exactly. Uh, Where I am right now, there was three kilometers of ice above me Mm -hmm. uh, at this very moment, you know, like at at this very spot. Yeah. And the consequence of that also was that the sea was 25 meters below the current level. That's so, right. you know, that meant that people could walk from uh, from Russia, what is effectively Russia, but the Asia continent, yeah. to the American one. And right. you could walk to... to, to so, so the whole thing is completely different. And I think this is the scale of the challenge that is facing us right now. Um, and that's, that's sort of how people should have it in their mind, to understand the scale of what we're talking about. Well, yeah, I mean, we are deeply into the Anthropocene now, you know? We are in the first human epoch, uh, the first recorded history epoch, where human beings themselves have actually done so much to change the natural environment that it has fundamentally changed the entire ecosystem of the planet. I mean, that's also just beyond belief staggering, you know. And I don't know if you've seen this book. You well, know, I mean, the Have you heard of the book by... Um, uh, um, James Lovelock, who invented the uh, Gaia hypothesis, he had his last, I think it's his last book, he wrote it when he was like 102 or something like that, um, and it's called The Novocene, you know, so uh-huh. you know, there's the Holocene, no, and then came the Anthropocene, and then in his view will come the Novocene, and that's worth reading. It's not really that related to climate change and things like that, but it's a very scary read in terms of what he thinks is the most likely um, scenario in terms of the evolution of the human race, you know, which also follows on from the books by uh, um, Yuval Noah Hariri, you know, who wrote Sapiens and then Homo Deus and then 21 Questions for the 21st Century, you know, fascinating books um, where he talks about the the merger of, you know, the human body with machines essentially as the most likely um you know, scenario in the next period of time, like not even that long, 50, you know, 10 years, there's things will happen. 50 years, things will happen. A hundred years, things will happen. And eventually, um, you know, could be that, um, 
you know, artificial intelligence combined with smart machines, etc., self-replicating machines that that function by being printed by 3D printers, etc., guided by, you know, machine learning AI, which can learn, you know, a trillion times faster than humans. That there will simp- that will be basically the only life form left, <laughs> you know, to the extent that you can even call it life. You know, so there's all those right. considerations too, which are another story entirely. But you know, we don't really know what's going to happen. Um, you know, in the future, uh, generally speaking, but we do know that today, you know, climate change is is here. It's with us. It's far worse than was predicted originally. This will almost certainly end up being the hottest year measured in history, as the last five or six years have been, and. Um, You know, we're really confronted with a serious problem that is being taken seriously. But, you know, we need to make sure that the lessons that we learned from COVID um, can also eventually be applied to climate change. And that those two dual challenges, you know, the two C's, you know, climate change and COVID, um, in a, you know, in a more optimistic moment you can easily see those two things being so dramatic and so severe and so truly global in nature that they finally push you know ever-growing numbers of people into the position of realizing that we are indeed one human species we are all in it together we're all 100 percent reliant on planet earth for our survival and we need to start organizing ourselves politically in that way uh, beginning with the topic of this podcast which is world citizenship and if people are of equal value everywhere why don't we simply share the same citizenship and start it from there and by doing that you know we all get into the position that every single one of us has a vested interest in everyone else's welfare and you know that's the objective that we have here is getting people to think in those terms we're not trying to say that you have to do it we're not pushing anybody to do anything but to at least contemplate that imagining the evolution of our political structures um, from the local level, from your own individual level to your family, to your, you know, your community, your village, your town, your city, you can be all of those things at all the same, at the same time. You know, you can identify yourself as a family member, as a father, as a brother, as a sister, all of these different things you can, you can identify yourself with simultaneously. With world citizenship, you're just adding one more extra identifier that ties us all together. And I really honestly cannot, after all the work I've done all around the world and the thinking I've done and books I've written, etc., I just truly cannot envisage any other way uh, whereby the, the human race and all of its flaws and all of its foibles, but all of its beauty and all of its greatness will survive unless we all collectively recognize that, you know, every single one of us all, you know, has 206 bones in our body and has blood rushing through our veins and we have the same wishes and hopes and aspirations as everyone else and we all try to escape suffering and so on and so forth. We forget all about these similarities now and we focus only on these minute differences between us Um, and we need to get back into that mode of seeing the similarities and embracing the differences because the differences are our culture the differences are what make life worth living you know and unless we do that and you know care for each other mutually i just don't see a very positive future you know on the horizon and if anything forces us to 
you know, confront that. It's the whole question of climate change and what's happening right now uh, to the people of the Marshall Islands and so many other places. Yeah. So and anything else you want to add, um, Guillaume, before we sign off tonight on this episode? No, it was great talking to you. Uh, it was um, a real pleasure to be able to explain to the auditors as well the situation for, for the Marshall Islands and, and what we've been doing. And I couldn't agree with you more. That um, And I think I, I would simply add that, you know, it's not what you said can be interpreted or, or, or perceived by others to be a bit uh, to be naive in certain ways, uh, like those that are on the right end of the spectrum. And I think that it it's not naive. I think it, it's deceiving uh, to think that it is. It's the other way around because these people haven't acknowledged that displacement uh, is a mode of adaptation that we all will have to adapt, right. uh, and that. Right. Uh, adaptation, uh, our common need to adapt makes us dependable on 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 one another, and so it's not just a, a, a naivety. Um, and and the COVID crisis has demonstrated that while some people may want to actually sort of close off the borders, not to have Chinese come and bring in the diseases at the same time, uh, we need to trade with the with the other countries in order to get the food, in order to get uh, the medicine, in order to get the masks. Uh, and, and, and that interdependency, which I think is also sort of important because it's in geo geological terms as well, in the sense that as the planet heats up and, and, and various areas of the planet are going to be affected differently, mm -hmm. uh, but they're all going to be affected at the end. So that means that you, 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 you will not be able to just support yourself just with your own little garden. You can help. It will help adapt but you will need others as well to interact with, to support. Well, absolutely. And, you know, m many people who would consider that, you know, global, you know, th the right wing in many countries uses the term globalist as a negative <laughs> to, he's just a globalist, you know, um, you know, that yeah. as if that would threaten, you know, the integrity of their nationalistic uh, stances, you know, and, you know, I always find it quite interesting with many, many nationalistic people, um, you know, I mean, you can try to stand in their shoes and see why they tr try to turn to their to their country or at least some mythological belief in their country as the way to solve really complex problems. And it's easy and it's familiar. And, you know, you can sort of sympathize with them that that would be a way that they think could solve really difficult um, problems. At the same time, they they forget to look at the much bigger picture and see that historically that has never been the solution for uh, complex difficulties um, and, you know, declining economic circumstances or whatever it may be. And, you know, it's always good to remind them that, you know, they may be chanting nationalistic slogans or whatever, but, you know, they probably had coffee in the morning that was grown in, you know, Colombia, and then they had a pizza for lunch that was derived from Italy, and then they had a cup of, you know, a, a shot of scotch in the evening that was from Scotland. And then they went to a Thai restaurant for dinner. And then they watched a movie from Hollywood all in the same day from yeah. all these horrible other cultures, you know, horrible other countries that are trying to get them, you know. Um, 
we're all integrated with the global civilization that we're, we all live in. And we can deny that if we want to. We can pretend we don't live in a global civilization, but look at it at, you know, objectively from any angle. And we do. Whether, whether you believe it or not, we do live in a global civilization. All you have to do is look at an airport, any airport in the world, and ask yourself, why does this airport look kind of exactly like the airport that I left home from, you know? Why is it that, you know, vehicles that are uh, run on fossil fuels and have, have four wheels, why are those in every single country on Earth and the primary means of transportation, you know? Um, the list goes on. Why are right? they all monochromatic? <laughs> yeah, right, right. So, you know, I think, I think, and several other people actually on this podcast earlier, um, in earlier episodes have, you know, talked about this issue of, you know, the big challenge that we have now, of nationalism and autocracy and oligarchy and all that. And, and one, one of the guests said, you know, it's basically, you know, I worry about it, but basically it's just a fad. It's a, it's a trendy thing to be now, you know, and in lieu of other alternatives and, you know, the failure of traditional political parties to catch up with developments, it's the most convenient place to turn, you know? So, you know, I hope they're right. I hope it is very short-lived. I hope it's like the last gasp, really, of, you know, people that know in their heart of hearts that we do truly live in a globalized world. And no matter what happens economically or in COVID terms, we, we will remain in that unified, globalized world. Um, and the trick is to make sure that everybody is brought along for the ride. And that, that's really the problem, I think, at, at its core, is that there's a huge number of people who were not brought along for the ride. They did not benefit from, you know, the forces of globalization as un, you know, world citizenship oriented as they are, um, they feel left out and they feel um, irrelevant. And nobody should be irrelevant. You know, everybody has to play a role and should should be able to play a role. And you give people more roles to play, I can guarantee you that those uh, nationalistic sentiments will decline. Absolutely. And right. um, if we work together to grapple with climate change and COVID, for instance, that's one way to do it and, you know, jo join our energies together. And if you see what the work that's going on now in, in vaccines around the world, I mean, scientists from all across the world working together feverishly um, to find a solution for the human race against this one virus. I mean, that's a really positive sign. And there's millions of those positive signs all around, you know. I mean, the fact that you, as a, as a French-Egyptian human rights activist, can be working on, you know, the Marshall Islands on the other side of the world and all the other countries you work on is another positive sign that, um, you know, there's a lot of people out there doing a lot of great things that are based on the premise of, of our shared humanity and not based on, you know, some, some diluted superiority of one, you know, one country over another. You know, so that that's our hope anyway, that things will keep moving in the in the more uh you know global unified uh direction and that the problems that we face simply can't be addressed at the national level. They need to be addressed globally. And moving in that direction as threatening and hard as it may be for a lot of people, um, really in the end is the most logical way to go on top of everything else. It, in the end, it will be the most efficient, um, the most inclusive, the most participatory, um, the fairest, the mo most egalitarian um, system available to us, you know, but right. it's, 
only our minds collectively that stop us from doing it. It's nothing else. It's just where we're at collectively, 7.8 billion people, uh, and how we see the world each day. And the more we can get people to see beyond themselves, climb the ladder, the higher up they go on the ladder, the more they can see and the more they can understand and the more they can embrace. So that's that's our hope with this. So, Guillaume, thank you again very much for a great conversation today. And um, I wish I wish you personally and and independent diplomat um, collectively all the best of luck with all your work around the world, particularly in in the Pacific. And of course, we wish the very 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 best to everybody in the Marshall Islands and everywhere in the Pacific who are grappling today um, with the consequences of climate change and and global warming so with that i will um say farewell um and look forward to seeing you all next time in the next edition of jointly venturing bye now bye guillaume bye bye